This week's episode is brought to you by ISTE. At ISTE Live 23, on June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. Get inspired about teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. And then bring that joy back to your school. Register now at isteconference.org. With every new generation of students, there's an effort to understand what's different about them and what motivates them as they enter college, society, and the workforce. So what is driving Gen Z, Americans born between 1997 and 2013? Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. For this week's episode, I talked to a college president who makes the case that the key factors for this generation are how diverse they are demographically and how eager they are to break out of the partisan divisions on issues like gun control, environmental protection, and racial justice. The argument comes from Timothy Law Snyder, president of Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. He argues that for these students, growing up during a string of school shootings and the economic and racial divides brought to light by the COVID-19 pandemic and the killing by police of George Floyd have contributed to an impatience with the status quo and a disillusionment with the idea of rugged individualism and being left to go it alone. He calls this group the solidarity generation. And just as students are finding more solidarity with each other in social media platforms and elsewhere, he says educators need to bring students into the process of changing educational systems like never before in what he calls intergenerational solidarity. It's not we need to get out of the way, which we often hear. We have to bring that experiential wisdom to them, help them understand that we are here as their sounding boards and as persons who can share our experiences with them rather than we'll teach them how to do it or, as too often happens in our society, we'll just reject them. That argument stands in stark contrast to recent proposals by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is championing legislation that would prohibit public colleges in the state from projects that, quote, espouse diversity, equity, and inclusion or critical race theory. Meanwhile, a new university getting off the ground in Texas, called the University of Austin, aims to avoid what its leaders say is liberal bias on most campuses. I recently sat down with Snyder, right after a talk he gave about this idea at the South by Southwest ADU conference in Austin, to hear more about his views on this generation of students and what he thinks educators should do differently to teach and reach them. I started by asking him what he sees as the key factor of this generation of high school and college students? Well, the main trait for this generation is what I call them, and that is the solidarity generation. These are purposeful people who seek to create a better world through action and who very much evidence solidarity within themselves and even with other generations. Whole idea being exactly what we do at LMU, create the world we want to live in. Haven't already students been 
interested in, you know, for a long time, marketing campaigns about colleges have been like, come have a purpose. What's different about students that you're seeing? And how do you, you know, how, what is different? There's quite a few things that are different. Students have always been interested in change, but these students are different because they are leveraging everything available to them. Technology, social media, voting. They have the second highest turnout over the last dozens of years in the most recent election. And they are seeking actively to make change. They're actually doing things. They're standing up to other generations while at the same time seeking to and literally partnering with other generations. That's all different. We've got to dig into example because this is all very abstract. So, And it sounds like you have some students that you are thinking of when you describe this. So can you give an example? Sure. I think about the students who have helped us divest at LMU. So over the last 10 years, we have been talking about divestment. Um, and it's important to understand a lot of people say, yes, yeah, students do that everywhere. They're all demanding. They all want change. They're all naive. What we try to do is work with them, partner with them, respect them. And what happened in this case is very much emblematic of that. So when we started working with them, and when the first idea from them was, let's divest, and we said, that's fine, but it could cost us, say, a could cost us a scholarship. They said, okay, tell us more, and began to work with us. And they have worked in concert with us to come up with an unraveling of our investment profile for the university endowment, and we'll be divested by 2030, thanks to them and thanks to their work and their ability to work intergenerationally. Did you lose a scholarship? Not yet, because we're, we're investing so well, we haven't had to worry about it. Um, you also mentioned that there, you know, students are using social media and other platforms in ways that they're able to do activism that hasn't been done in the past, it sounds like. Can you give an example of that? Sure. Z. Thomas, within five days of the murder of George Floyd, partnered with five friends on Twitter. And within those five days, they had a 10,000-person march on tap and ready. We look at things like the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. Within a month of that, students organized 800 different protests across the United States involving over 2 million people total. That's amazing. What does a college need to do differently for this, you know, if you're right about this, like, you know, this trait of this generation of students? We need to partner with them in ways we have never partnered. So frequently when we work with students, there's a disposition, particularly among the faculty and even more so among the administration, that we know what we are doing. We will determine what is best for you. We will determine the curriculum. We will be the sages on the stages. Now, typically where we have learned to become less that proverbial sage on the stage is when we involve students in group work in the class. But again, it's really a controlled environment. We are the wise ones. Trust us. Faith-based education. Those days are over. These students want change. They want it now. They want to be involved in it. And they know they have experiential deficits relative to the rest of us. So the best way to work with them is to say, we're going to not only respect you, we are going to partner with you, we are going to admire you, we are going to help you work on your issues, because you are so good in your solidarity that those are also our issues. 
take, for example, gun violence, take climate control, take issues of race, that we are going to give up some ground here educationally, even in curriculum. And not to say we're all going to become the state of Florida where suddenly the curriculum's up for legislation, but I think we need to step back and say we need as much help as you need, as you need help, and that's what we're doing now, at least at LMU. I want to hear more about how would you give ground on the curriculum? Like, what, What's an example of that? Uh, decolonizing the curriculum. So our students of color, particularly our black students, have actually met with our faculty senate and discussed their issues with them. Faculty senate has taken action. Um, I suggested we do this in a letter I penned called Beyond Words that we put out just following the murder of George Floyd. But um, to see how our faculty have taken on this disposition where they're saying it's about time, this is right, we'll still design the curriculum, but we're going to be doing it with your input going forward. That's an example. And to see faculty recraft curriculum, that's awesome. We don't often see that in higher education. One of the you know, points you're making is that there's a, a solidarity among students and they're sort of activists in a way. But it seems like the assumption is they're activists on the same side, like as a, as a unit. And I am not seeing that at colleges that, that around the country. They're, there are all viewpoints on campuses and among students as, as among the, the non-students, the, the staff or anything. So I know that there's a, a sense that there's a, you know, liberal, people will say there was a liberal bias in, ed- in education sometimes. But actually, it seems like there's plenty of viewpoint diversity, especially among the students. So what happens when your activist students don't agree with each other, much less, you know, and you might not agree with them. Like, what do you do with the massive polarization that's out there as it goes to this point? We do have some polarization. In general, across the nation, the students are relatively to the left. And when I say relatively, I mean relative to the rest of the nation. And um, that is something that we need to accept. I think a lot of people view students as blank slates, so if you look, for example, at what's happening in Florida with Governor DeSantis and this uh, revision of what we teach and how we teach it, what we're allowed to teach, what we're not allowed to teach, all that assumes that the student walks into your classroom and they are the chalkboard, free of chalk. And our job is basically to write the script for them. It doesn't work that way. You get what walks in the classroom these days The students have reconciled the issues. They've thought through them. They have their opinions. To get directly to your question about dissent within the student body, I think we have less of it than we have in the past, particularly in the traditional left-right. And we have quotes from students following elections where they say they're not voting partisan, as are their elders, persons like myself at times. Um, But they are very much issue-oriented We do have concerns, and I think this is actually an issue at at our institution, where students whose voices are minoritized politically feel like they're really out of the club. So that's where we have student groups to which they belong. Concern there is those can get echo chamberic, as can their, their, their counterparts. So we're trying to bring them together in conversation. The motif I always use is when we have a conversation, Let's arrive prepared 
to melt a little bit, maybe all the way to the core, but we want to walk away from a conversation saying, by virtue of this conversation, I have changed, and I have changed for the better via and through what I have learned. I've mentioned that in speeches to students. I don't think we're quite there yet, but we're working on it. It seems like a tough time, even in, even as you say, where there's some, um, maybe there's a, a leaning by in a group, but it seems like there's certainly, at, at most campuses, still going to be these these moments where people don't agree on an issue or they don't agree on how to get to the solution for the issue. So when you have, um, yeah, when you have all these tools out there, when you have a system, uh, I mean, a, a moment where people do feel like I deserve my change, and and maybe they do, um, it seems like a, a tough, a tough to manage from a university leader point of view. It surely is. And, and the solution, again, is all through conversation It's also through assurance that when faculty teach, they present all sides of the issue, at least in a way as unbiased as they can. Um, And and this still gets back to, you know, the the, the sort of kind of over, well, the, the cloud above us in this conversation is so political. People always say the faculty are leftist or the students these days are blank. And we just have to understand the value of diversity. And diversity is not just black people and white people. It's also political opinions and ideation. And the moment that stops, we're done. Because we've created a human echo chamber. And that'll do nothing but drown itself out. After the break, why does he think this issue is so important? And how has his background as a musician helped this college president connect with today's students? Stay with us. For more than four decades, the ISTE conference has been recognized as one of the world's most influential education events. It's where educators and education leaders gather to engage in hands-on learning, share best practices, and hear from the brightest minds from the world of education and beyond. At ISTE Live 23, June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. From real-world lessons that empower students to groundbreaking ways to collaborate to leading-edge edtech tools, you'll find out how to lead next-gen learning during hundreds of strategy-packed sessions. Rediscover your passion for teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. Then bring that joy back to your school. Register today at isticonference.org. I'm curious, like, who is the audience? Do you feel like other college leaders need to hear this? And, you know, what, what, what is the reason you need to feel like you need to say that this generation has this need and that, that, uh, you know educators need to know that what's your what are you you know what are you thinking reacting to in a way i emphatically believe that all involved in education high school particularly and then university level particularly need to understand this generation brings with it more possibility than we have witnessed in human history they have extraordinary features And it's our job to revise the ways in which we approach them, 
the ways in which we engage them so that we can help them help us, help those here, help those to come, help the earth itself. They have it. And it's not we need to get out of the way, which we often hear. We have to bring that experiential wisdom to them, help them understand that problems don't necessarily have clear-cut solutions, help them understand there are many ways to solve given problems, help them understand that we are here as their sounding boards and as persons who can share our experiences with them, rather than we'll teach them how to do it, or, as too often happens in our society, we'll just reject them. And just one more thing about this generation, let's stop the Gen Z stuff. X was called X for a reason. They wanted to X out social convention. Why we ended up calling them millennials, because they didn't like it. There was a five-to-one survey where they wanted millennial and not that letter. This is not the 26th generation. We call it Z because we didn't quite know what to call it when they first emerged. And generations are defined by their socio-cultural dispositions and orientations. This is the solidarity generation. Once you recognize that, you have a tool that educators have never had, and we can help them bring it to make the world, or as we say, not just a better place, but as we say at LMU, create the world we want to live in. It sounds like you're not going to ban TikTok on your campus, that this idea that the students are just on TikTok, so they're just like lost to the world is not your thing. Yes. We always had to bear in mind that often when they're on TikTok, they're there for reasons. They are there for social justice. They are there for reasons environmental. Um, there's all these myths about generations that they're, this one, we say that they are on their phones all day long. Take a look at the surveys from Pew. Sure, they're on their phones more than other generations, but they also desire one-on-one, not necessarily one-on-one, but um, human analog conversations more than any other generation, even more than any in history. They want to talk. They are uh, considered to be on social media all the time. They are, but they're also newly into analog media. They're playing with VHSs and cassettes and particularly vinyl. They're messing around with Polaroids. They're trying to get safe spaces away from all things digital. So, sure, they're on TikTok a lot, but they're also doing other things. And we welcome TikTok. That's a communication medium. We, we for a while, didn't welcome the, the quill pen, right, when it first came out. We didn't welcome movable type. These are not our enemies. These are ways in which we can connect with one another. So, and let's also get over the lazy thing, that they don't want this, and they, I understand work-life balance, but... Oh, you want somebody who comes to work balanced? Or do you want another obsessive who's just going to push buttons all day and try to make the most money they can? You want somebody who wants to fix the world? These are those persons, the solidarities. There was a question in the audience at your session that I think is a good one, which is like, okay, it sounds great to help left-leaning activist students, but what if you're in a state where that could be Uh, get you a target on your back for funding. Yes, and and that question was largely about diversity. What happens when the leadership about you and the leadership in control, as we can see here in Texas, as we certainly have in Florida, don't understand issues like DEI? We've had this with other leaders in higher education, sometimes on our boards. And I think it's important that we without being negative, without being defensive, 
help people understand the true value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's so many ways to approach it. I'll give you three. First, there's justice. So we, as a Catholic institution, know about Catholic social teaching, and that says that every person born is born a person of immutable dignity and in the image of God. Well, that would imply that that person is just like me when their tears fall out. They are exactly like me in terms of their feelings and their joys and their intellect. So there's that piece, but that's the piece that starts sorting people out. You're either into justice or you're not, or you're you know, anti, um, anti-DEI. Some people are, but most people are just sort of on the periphery and not interested. So the justice reason, while it's number one and sufficient, is not what we use to bring people around on this. Instead, we talk, where I am, about our vision for the institution. If you want to create the world we want to live in, we're going to need the most creative minds imaginable. And those will come from all walks of life. And if we start filtering who walks in the door or who does the main thinking when they're inside the institution, we lose. We're not as creative as we want to be. The more diverse we are in our group thinking, and we think more in groups now, Webb Telescope, over 2,000 scientists involved in the creation of that thing, the more diverse we are, the better will be our solutions, the more applicable they will be also to all persons about us. So that's what we try to talk about is the value of diversity. And the only way to be diverse is to be inclusive, and the only way to be inclusive is to be equitable. But there's a third piece we can talk about in the market. So you want to get rid of diversity initiatives. You're not allowed to talk about critical race theory. That's fine. You may lose students of color as enrollees. You're going to lose a ton of students of every color because this generation, the market, if you will, is into DEI. They get it. And they're not going to want to be affiliated with a state like Florida. They're not going to go to those schools. They're going to get a pre-filtered set of people that's very small, and it's not going to have much talent by virtue of its size. It makes me think right here in Austin, there's the University of Austin you've probably read about, which is kind of trying to, it's a little bit like the DeSantis message, I guess. Um, it, 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 could there be a polarized world of some higher ed going one political leaning and another another? Of course there could be, and I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing things diverge. Um, in a certain way, there's value to divergence because higher ed has always been a lot of replicants. So one place will come up with some idea and then all the rest, okay, now we have to do this, whatever it is. Um, I, I think the issue now is, at least when this happens at this point, these, these bifurcations, and that's really what it is. It's sort of left and right, or at least assumed to be left, and therefore we're going to go right. They're so extreme. You're, we're going to lose the very things we initially talked about. We're not going to have a well-rounded education, a person who looks at all sides of all issues in ways where they can be informed, can make a best decision. Now, when you do this at the state level, because you're not going to have the creative minds attending school, and you're definitely not going to have the creative minds teaching students, you're going to politically-minded people, people sorted on a single dimension of our existence, politics, you are going to drain that state of almost all of its intellectual talent. It's going to be bone thin in the future when it seeks to be creative, 
when it seeks to be innovative, when it seeks to bring good things to its citizens, they will have evaporated it just because they either want to get elected or they have certain beliefs about politics that are so strong that they will affect their population, drain its intellect, drain its innovation, drain its learning, basically dumb it down. There may be politicians who love that. Those are not the politicians we should ever elect. I hear you are a... uh, I was going to say... I was going to say magician for some reason, but musician. Uh, maybe you're a magician too. Um, a musician. Um, I'm curious, honestly, about uh, about. Could you just tell us a little bit about that on a sidetrack here? And it seems like you know, it seems like something you mention sometimes and talk about. Sure, I was a professional musician for in part of my youth, and I kind of had to put that sideways by the wayside in the houseware warehouse. And I was able to reawaken it when I was asked to do things. Like, I actually had a podcast about 15 years ago before podcasts were more hip. Um, and then I revived it again when I came to LMU, and I was so graciously invited to produce the music for, by produce, I mean write and perform and record and mix and master and such, the music for our annual Christmas card. So if you go to YouTube and you type LMU Christmas, you'll see a lot of my music in there. It feels like that might be your, a connection to students these days. I know a lot of students are out there creating, you know, they're, they're being creatives, they're putting out content and, and seeing that as a, an avenue. You know, it's really funny because I'll say, yeah, I do music on occasion or whatever. And they go, oh, yeah, like, uh, like, what do you play? Are you a DJ or whatever? I said, well, here, why don't you go to my sound? You have a SoundCloud? And all of a sudden, that, if you have a SoundCloud with students, it's like, whoa, whoa, time out, time out, toy boat, toy boat. They love it. So it's cool. They go to it, too. I see them poking around in there at times. What's on your SoundCloud? <laughs> what is on it now? Yeah, like, can we, if we wanted to put a sample on here on our uh, end credits, like, what do we, what, what sure. would you point us to? Well, you go to soundcloud.com slash Timothy Law Snyder. That's my full name. And you can pick any track you want. They're fairly stated all over the map. The ones toward the top, the most recent ones, I've been trying to do more orchestral things because typically when the people produce the the holiday music, they, they, they want things pretty syrupy and they're not as dark as I might like to uh, normally make music. But I have some of that on there too, where I've done some things for a dance professor and we have a stunning animator, Jose Garcia Moreno, and he and I did a piece where he, he has this way of making these paintings from the St. John's Bible come alive where they're animated when you look through this device this, through an app on your phone and then if you have the headphones on you hear my music that goes with it and that's on there too all right thank you so much good being with you this has been the it surge podcast every week we bring you conversations like this one if you like the show please follow us on your favorite podcast app and sign up for our weekly podcast newsletter There you'll find links to dive deeper into the topics that we cover. This episode was written and put together by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at JRYoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing help this episode by Rebecca Koenig, opening theme music by Komaku, and the music we're hearing now closing us out is by our guest today, Timothy Vossneider. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.